before I read a little bit more scripture, I want to just let you know that inside of the order of worship, there's this page in here. And for those of us who are more kinesthetic learners, it might be nice for you to take notes or to doodle along while I preach this morning. So know that that's there for you if you'd like to doodle along while I'm preaching. And I'll be reading uh, just after the story that was just presented to us in Genesis chapter 46. Listen to God's word. Israel sent Judah ahead to Joseph to lead the way before him into Goshen when they came to the land of Goshen. Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet his father Israel in Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, I can die now, for having seen for myself that you are still alive, Joseph said to his brothers and his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our ancestors, in order that you may settle in the land of Goshen, because all shepherds are abhorrent to the Egyptians. This is the gift of God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and That which is in our hearts, Lord, be in line with you this day. May you silence any voice in us that is not your own, and may your spirit be present with us as we read the scripture and as we consider what it is that you have to say to us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One piece of technology that has radically altered my life in the past few months is called the Instant Pot. Have you heard of the Instant Pot? This is, this is something that was made about 10 years ago, but it hasn't become popular until the last few months. And now it's very popular on Amazon's website as one of the prime deals. It comes up all the time. The Instant Pot. Now, the Instant Pot is an electronic pressure cooker. Maybe that doesn't sound life-changing, but it's life-changing. Here's how it's life-changing. You put water in it. Like, if you want to make a delicious pasta meal, you put water in, a couple spices, you put pasta in, and you push a button, and 15 minutes later, you have this awesome meal. It's unbelievable. And if you want to make it taste exactly like it came from a restaurant, you replace the water with broth and with heavy cream, if you want some added calories, but it's delicious, and now it tastes like it just came from a restaurant. It's unbelievable. It's actually fascinating. I love... Well, I don't want to say if I love, but I mean, I love it because you have a great meal in 15 minutes. The immediacy, the simplicity of pushing a button, and it's actually healthy, you know, because it's all pressure cooked. Everything stays in there, and it's, it's a delicious meal. Well, maybe it's not healthy if you have the heavy cream, but, you know, it's, it's delicious. It's so good. It's immediate. Uh, this is a life-changing piece of technology, and it's fascinating. Though I have realized that as I cook with this thing on a multiple times a week now with the Instant Pot, is that I've lost a sense of connection somewhat to the cooking process. <laughs> yes. At first, it felt a bit like Christmas, when you're like, what's going on in there? 
what is going to emerge when I open the lid after 15 minutes, you know? You have no sense of what it is that's going inside of the Instant Pot. You lose total connection to the reality of what cooking feels like. And you just don't know what's going on inside of there, how these, how these ingredients are being transformed. You just don't know. There's a sense of disconnection with the reality of what's taking place inside of it. So it's exciting when you look in, but sometimes it's not so exciting. Maybe you got things wrong and it just didn't work out quite right. And then you're stuck with an instant pot full of mush <laughs> instead of an instant pot full of delicious foods. It's fascinating. Uh, and as we look today at the Joseph story, and we look at Genesis 45 and 46, what I want to notice for us just a little bit is that I think what we might discover is the gift of the nuclear family. The nuclear family means our biological family or the families that have formed us and shaped us and have been the relationships that are deeply connected to us. So our adopted families, if we're adopted, or our foster families, the families that care for us, the nuclear family. One of the gifts of the nuclear family, I believe, is that nothing happens in secret in some ways in a nuclear family. We are so connected to those in our nuclear family, and that connection is a real gift. It's a real profound gift. When I was in seminary, I was blessed with the opportunity to take this class from one of the best teachers, perhaps in the entire country, on pastoral counseling. And in this class I took with my professor, we surveyed four different psychotherapeutic models in hopes that we could glean insights and techniques as we prepared for pastoral ministry and when we would find ourselves uh, mentoring or offering counseling to congregation members. And of the four models we studied, one of them stood out to me as profound. And it's called family systems therapy. It was developed in the 1960s and 70s by Murray Bowen, and it's known as the Bowen theory also. Bowen was trained as a medical doctor, but after World War II, he transitioned to psychiatric sciences. And when he began working in psychiatry during that time, the dominant model of therapy that was being used in the world was to try to treat the individual. Essentially, they took the ideas of medical science and they wanted to try to use those as a way of treating mental health issues in persons. So much like when you go to the doctor, if you're sick, they try to treat the symptoms and you get better. Or if you break a bone, they put a cast on it and you try to get better. And so oftentimes people that had mental health issues would see a psychiatrist and they would do the same thing, try to treat the symptoms of the individual, see if they get better. And he found, Dr. Bowen, that more often than not, he was getting children brought to him that were the problem children. And they said, can you fix my child? They're acting out. What Bowen observed was that oftentimes the problem child was acting out not because there was something wrong with that child, but because there was some kind of dysfunction in the family, some kind of dysfunction happening in the family system. So he started to do therapy with parents and the children in the same room together. And what he observed and noticed was that as the parents' issues were being resolved, that problematic behavior with the children, it almost vanished completely. It was an astonishing discovery that he made. And he found also that as he taught this theory to, the, to his students who became psychiatrists, that as they had healthy family relationships, they tended to be some of the best therapists themselves too. They were able to be present in the midst of those conflicts 
And they found themselves not becoming too anxious as they entered into that conflict. So this is what Bowen Family Systems Theory says on their website about what Bowen Theory is. This is what they say on the website. Bowen Family Systems Theory is a theory of human behavior that views the family as an emotional unit and uses systems thinking to describe the complex interactions in a unit. It is the nature of a family that its members are intensely connected emotionally. Often people feel distant or disconnected from their families, but this is more feeling than fact. Families so profoundly affect their members' thoughts, feelings, and actions that it often seems as if people are living under the same emotional skin. People solicit each other's attention, approval, and support and react to each other's needs, expectations, and upsets. The connectedness and reactivity make the functioning of family members interdependent. A change in one person's functioning is predictably followed by reciprocal changes in the functioning of others. Families differ somewhat in the degree of interdependence, but it is always present to some degree. Now, there's two things I think that are so interesting about this quote. One of them is this idea that though we might feel disconnected or separated from our family members, that's more feeling than it is fact. That is really a fascinating observation, I think, for us. That there are times in our lives where we feel distant or disconnected from family members, but it's more feeling than it is fact. We are perhaps deeply and profoundly connected. And the second thing I think is interesting is this idea of emotional skin. How many of us have had those experiences in life in which a member of our family does something and it just provokes a reaction in us immediately? It, we, we react to one another's things. We know each other deeply and intimately in our family of origins. Joseph's story is really a story about him, but I think under the lens of trying to think about it from a family systems perspective, it's a story about family. Joseph's story about family. Think of the recap. He was the brother who was held up above all the other brothers. Now, maybe a parent shouldn't do that, right? Pick and choose the best of the siblings. Maybe that's not such a good idea, and it caused some dysfunction between the siblings. So maybe that's an example of family systems theory right there. What is Israel doing? Picking a favorite child and marking them, setting them aside. And the siblings respond to that by sending him into slavery. And it's a horrible story if you read through it. The first few chapters are just horrendous of what it looks like for Joseph to live in Israel as slave. Yet he comes out of it and he becomes the second-hand person to Pharaoh. And he becomes in power over Egypt. He becomes that which he dreamed he would be. And then we see this incredible moment in which the brothers come to Joseph in Israel, or when the brothers come to see him in Egypt. And it's an incredible moment because even after 10, 15, 20 years, however long it was, he recognizes them, if you remember in the story, and he says, come closer, come closer. He knows his brothers. And you would imagine that perhaps there was some serious disconnect that was going on there. And yet, he says, come closer. He has this deep emotional connection to his siblings when he sees them. And not just that, but he could have enacted some kind of eye-for-eye treatment to his brothers as well. He could have enacted that because he was the one in power. He could have treated them so poorly. He could have done to them what they had done to him. And yet, he doesn't. 
And not just that, but in his own relationship with God, somehow remarkably, he sees his place being there in Egypt as a way of grace, of I am here because God has sent me to be here so that I can protect you and save you in the midst of this famine. This is going to be the way that our family will survive. And then perhaps we have two of the most beautiful encounters of all the scriptural narrative in which the brothers unite and hold each other and weep on each other. And we laugh because it is awkward to see people hugging and crying together when we saw the students doing this earlier. But it's beautiful and intimate if you can imagine brothers being united for the first time after 15 or 20 years and not treating each other with eye for eye, but with love and care and a hug and a wiping of the tear, holding each other. And then we also see this encounter again when Israel shows up in Goshen finally, and they hold each other, and they weep, and they hug each other. There's a long embrace. The scripture says, a good while. I think the beauty of the story for us too is that when a God is a part of our life, there's never a point at which family wounds cannot ultimately be redeemed and reconciled. It might take time. We might feel a sense of disconnect. We might feel a sense of dysfunction, and there might very well be dysfunction and disconnect in our family. And we might think that we're totally separated and cut off, but perhaps we're not. Perhaps that's more feeling than it is fact. And when God is present in our life, there's always a possibility to pursue repair, to pursue reconciliation, to pursue healing. And as we heard earlier, perhaps it means that we wait for the Lord, as we heard from the psalmist, as we wait for the Lord. That moment embrace is beautiful between Joseph's family and his nuclear family. And as much as this story is about the healing of his family and Joseph's family, it's really a story about the healing of the human family as well. In the scriptural story, Israel has 12 children, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. So for everybody who had been reading this story and had heard this story in Genesis for all of time, though this is a story about Joseph, really this is a story about the nation of Israel because they understand themselves to have been descended from this family. And so there are 12 tribes in Israel, and as much as they might have disconnection or arguments to fight between one another, they have this narrative in their mind that there can always be reconciliation when God is a part of our life that maybe the tribe of Asher and the tribe of Dan are a conflict, but they have this story and they know that in God, somehow there can become reconciliation between the two of them. So this is a story, yes, about Joseph and his brothers, but it's also a story about Israel and that family, that larger biological family too. That's how they would have read this story. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul takes this idea that this is not just a story about Joseph. It's not just a story about the people of Israel, but he says this in Romans chapter 9. And it's a really complex argument in Romans 9, 10, and 11, but I just want to look at the first few verses of Romans 9 for us. This is what Paul says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, 
He means the Israelites since he was born a Jewish person. My kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from them according to the flesh comes the Messiah who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. It is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. But it is through Isaac the descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. Now, this is fascinating because Paul begins to interpret children of God not as biological descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel, but the spiritual family. Paul says it's those who are the descendants of the promise. Those are the ones who are counted as descendants. And you can see there's anguish in him that maybe there's some from his own family, Israel, that might not be counted. You can feel the anguish in what he's writing here. Um, But he hopes that they will. And that now we have this larger understanding of who the children of God are. It's the ones who are counted as descendants through the promise. So, yes, if our nuclear family is this one large emotional system, our, our family, we're connected deeply in powerful ways, and yet we don't always see it or feel it, but it's real, it's fact. Perhaps in our larger spiritual family, too, We might feel a sense of disconnection with the larger spiritual family, people in this sanctuary, people around the world. But that's more feeling than it is fact. There are barriers that get in the way of relationship with our larger spiritual family, real barriers. For example, of going to Mexico, poverty is a real barrier to building relationship. And for the people in Mexico to be able to have a relationship, to not even have a home to live in. But I think that's more feeling than it is fact. This past week, I was looking back through some photos of last year's Mexico mission trip, and I found this photo. Um, I don't know the story behind this photo, but I think I do know the story behind this photo a little bit. When I look at this photo, I think this little girl fell down, and she got something in her eye, and she started crying. And one of the students from the trip went over to go comfort her and console her and was wiping tears away from her eyes, was helping her. This was a moment that was so much like what happened with Joseph and his brothers, with Joseph and Israel, finding a sense of connection, even though there might have been experiences of barriers between people living in Tecate and Tijuana and here. This was a real moment of connection of the spiritual family of God, separated by maybe a thousand miles. And yet, here was this beautiful moment in which we recognized each other as children of God. This photo to me is a photo of shalom, peace. When we experience and recognize that we're one large interconnected family, and even in the midst of all the barriers that might separate us, somehow our shared humanity through the promise, makes us one family. And God is so present in moments like this on the Mexico mission trip. And through the ministries of this church, when we go on the Mexico trip, though there's some of us that are actually going, we all go together as one large spiritual family. So even if you are not physically there, 
your Spirit's presence is with us as we all go together as one large spiritual family. To close the sermon, I would like to read for you the names of those families that we're going to serve and to love and to recognize and perhaps hug and place our heads on each other's necks and weep together next week when we build houses for them. These are the names of the four families that we go to serve. The Silva Garcia family. This family consists of five, dad, Tulio, mom, Beatrice, son, age 12, daughter, age nine, and their grandmother. They currently live in two rooms on the property and their income is $150 a week. The Diaz Francisco family, there are 10 family members living in three rooms. Two grandparents, Jose and Ana, their son Concepcion and daughter-in-law Esperanza, and six grandchildren, four girls ages 8 through 14, and two boys, 5 and 19, and their income is $182 a week. The Ramirez Manso family. This family of three lives in one room. Dad Eduardo and Mom Jolisa have a 14-year-old son, and their weekly income is $61. The Cuenza Diaz family. Dad Amando and Mom Montserrat have four children, two sons ages 15 and 12, and two daughters ages 6 and 1. They live in two rooms currently and make $66 a week. These are the four families that we're going to serve. And may we lay our necks upon one another and let all that feels disconnected between us and our large spiritual family find connection again through God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the story of Joseph God, that there are hopeful stories like this in our lives that we have, that we don't need to only hold on to the, to the bad, to the dysfunction. That's present, that exists, that's real. Perhaps what is more real in our lives is the hope that we have in you, that we can become like Joseph and his brothers, reconciled, and we hold that out as hope for not just our families, ourselves, but also for our larger spiritual family, all those who are descendants according to the promise. So God, may you bless this worship service and may you be with us in this moment. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As a part of our Lenten practice after our sermons for these few weeks, we have a chance just to pause, to reflect, and you can use the Lenten reflection guide inside of the order of worship to respond to these two prompts for us. The Lenten reflection exercise says, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me, and show me the way everlasting. And you get a minute or so to respond to these prompts. God's longing for us, and my prayer to God.